Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Confession's good for the soul, always. I had no idea who Klaus Schwab was before this question, so I had to do some, a little bit of background search on the guy, uh, and the question that was given was, could Klaus Schwab be the Antichrist? Uh, so when I looked up information, there's some here, how many know a lot about uh, I forgot his name, Klaus Schwab. Okay, okay, yeah, Moritz back there in the financial uh, systems. You, you know some about him too? Okay. Others, Klaus Schwab fans or non-fans? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I figured Barfield, well, he knows something about everyone. You probably can speak to him in German too. So here's what I found, that he um, is the founder of the World Economic Forum back in 1971, which has morphed and grown. He's a German university professor uh, the initiator of, and this one I was familiar with, the Great Reset. The Great Reset. So he's the person with the idea of the Great Reset that does get bantered about quite a bit in political circles. He talks about the fourth economic revolution. So what are the economic revolutions? Well, we had steam that in, introduced the industrial age. Then you had electricity, the second industrial age, if you will. Then you had computers which introduced a whole nother industrial era. And now in the fourth, it's all manner of high-tech gizmos and devices, including artificial intelligence, 3D design. That, uh, you know, there are those who talk about taking 3D copy makers and uh, being able to make simulated human organs for organ transplant. Uh, pardon me on this microphone here. We can get this straight. But there are a lot of crazy things that go along with it, and some not so crazy. So this is who Klaus Schwab is. Giving you that background, you already know, I have no foundation to stand upon uh, to tell you whether or not he's the Antichrist because he's a stranger to me. And even if he weren't, even if he lived down the block from me, I still don't think I would have a foundation to tell you who I think the Antichrist would be. Give me some names of people who over the years have been recommended as the possible Antichrist other than people that might be in the room at this time. And Okay, Adolf Hitler was clearly recommended. Larry? Henry Kissinger. I remember those rumors. Can you think of others? The Pope, of course. And there's still people who only think the Pope. Who? Nero? Oh, I guess if you were living back then, you probably would. And there's a whole brand of theology, uh, preterism, that's based on the thought that he was. So yes, you're exactly right. Nero, um, you know, people went Obama, O-B-A, no, it's only five, oh, B Barack, B-A-R-A-C, oh, there he is, that's a guy, okay, so people do that kind of thing, we're not going to do that. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, by the way, one of the favorite words of um, Klaus Schwab, and I'm working really hard not to say Charles Schwab, right? <laughs> I've learned there's a difference, but... Uh, uh, Klaus Schwab is 84 years old. So when you read about the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 11, the Antichrist is a person of some measure of vigor, mental vigor, oratory ability, philosophical ability, uh, and physical vigor. It seems he's quite a specimen in every category, which is interesting to me as just an observer of culture. 
We're living in a generation that is increasingly fixated on uh, physical fitness, but more than physical fitness, the physical form in almost a Grecian way. There's a reason that Grecian art is often demonstrating uh, the prowess and the, the strength of the human body. And if you, if you look at young people today, there are a number of things that are happening in youth culture today. One, the delay of marriage. Uh, average age of marriage now is somewhere between 26 and 30. Uh, when I was graduating from college, if, if you weren't engaged, there was something wrong with you. You know, uh, I was 21 when I got married, and now people think there was something wrong with you. Uh, that's too young. Uh, so there's a delay in getting married, which is having an impact, of course, on population, especially in industrialized and modern countries. Along with that, there's more time to spend on some things that some of us would consider even frivolous. Uh, there's nothing wrong with physical fitness. Bodily exercise profiteth little. Uh, and it's wise for us to keep this temple, the Holy Ghost, fit for service for the King of Kings. But the fitness parade has gone into the bulking up where almost everyone's expected to be at least a miniature atlas along the way. And that does tie in with the considerations of who Antichrist will be. Uh, he'll be philosophically, oratorically, physically, and spiritually considered to be above his peers. There are a number of things that cause me to say we do stand on the threshold of the world accepting a universal world leader. Barack Obama's appearances in Europe during the United States presidential campaign should have alerted all Americans that this is weird. Okay, that's not a good political way of saying it, but that's weird. You haven't even taken the office or the oath of, oath of office and yet you have massive crowds in Europe and everyone cheering you on as some kind of a new world leader. That happened. and That wasn't that long ago. Okay, so when we open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 on the enigma and the question of the Antichrist, I don't believe that I'm going to be able to identify who the Antichrist is. Now, I'm not going to pick up sticks on this and have any, you know, knock down drag outs on it, but here's where I am on it personally. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says in verse 7, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth or withholds will continue to withhold until he be taken out of the way, that being the Holy Spirit. And then shall that wicked be revealed. So when will the wicked and that wicked, it can literally be translated here, that wicked one, he will be revealed when? After the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. Well, I'm very confident that I'll be taken out of the way when the Holy Spirit's taken out of the way because my body, according to 1 Corinthians 6, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in me and in you if you're a born-again believer. And when the Holy Spirit's taken out of the way, that one who wonderfully came at Pentecost and initiated, inaugurated this new dispensation, which was before a mystery, filling the church, baptizing the church into one body, the Jew and the Gentile together, uh, the Spirit of God's going to be taken away at the rapture. So I see the rapture in that passage. And when the Spirit of God, the one who now withholds, is taken out of the way, then the wicked one will be revealed. So the speculation about Antichrist is pretty much just that. Uh, I don't think I'll know who he is. I was in a meeting a number of years ago, and Dr. Whitcomb was asked the question, 
do you think that Barack Obama is the Antichrist? It was the best answer. Of course, Dr. Wickham was famous for short, pithy, great answers. He's smart, smarter than the average bear, too. And he said, his answer was, well, I've read, and he shared a couple of passages about the Antichrist. He said, for instance, in Daniel chapter 7, it seems that the Antichrist is Jewish. He doesn't worship the God of his fathers. That's Daniel chapter 11, rather. And he said further, the Antichrist is uh, tremendously gifted with oratory, and he's tremendously wise or brilliant. And as I consider President Obama, I don't think he fits that category. And so that, that was a good answer. It got a good laugh. Uh, but I don't think that we're going to know who the Antichrist is. I don't think I will anyway. Questions on that? Thoughts on that? Okay. All right. We didn't split the church over it, so that's good. Okay, so is prayer asking God to change his, hand, his mind about what's going to happen or praying that what he has ordained in the beginning is what we wanted? So let me read that again a little better. Is prayer asking God to change his mind about what's going to happen or praying that what he has ordained in the beginning is what, he, what we wanted? So let's start with this. Why do we pray? Well, that's, that's the right answer, Annie. Because we're commanded to. Let's start there. Because there are those who get hung up on, is, is prayer the twisting of God's arm? God who's omnipotent will not have his arm twisted by any man. And then we get hung up on, okay, if God is omniscient and sovereign, what's the use? Almost a fatalistic view. But I think we have to begin by saying, yes, prayer is commanded. Matthew 6 and verse 9, Jesus said to his disciples, after this manner, pray ye. Luke 18 and verse 1, he spake a parable unto them, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Ephesians 6 and verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication. But when we come to the question, is prayer asking God to change his mind about what's going to happen or praying that what he has ordained in the beginning is what we wanted? I think the best place for us to go to find a biblical answer to what I believe that question is asking is James chapter 5. And James chapter 5, James chapter 5 provides the Spirit of God's most compelling story of the feebleness of man impacting the omnipotence of God through the power of prayer. And the feebleness of man is illustrated in the life of Elijah, who was a man of like passions like we are. So when you think, well, I, you know, what, what good will my prayers be? The Spirit of God has already answered that. That Elijah was a man of like passions as you and I, and he prayed. So we're in James chapter 5 and verse 11. Subject to like passions as we are, he was just like you and me, he put his sandals on one, one foot at a time. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Wow. James 5, verse 17. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So the Spirit of God says, yes, the prayer of a feeble saint makes a monumental difference. And James is an apt illustration of that. Can you think of other illustrations of that in the lives of biblical heroes? Of they prayed, God answered. They prayed, God answered. Kadir. That's a great illustration. Moses pleaded with God that God would not destroy Israel. 
And Moses actually had a logical battle, a scriptural battle with, with the Lord about that, saying, you know, what will the heathen think if you let this happen? Yes, Rob? Yeah, it was a, it was a time of prayer. Uh, the angel of the Lord was in conversation, and that angel of the Lord being a Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And so that communication between uh, Abram for Sodom uh, and the Lord was, yes, that's a prayer, a communication between God and man uh, with a purpose in mind. Jay? So go ahead and cite it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we are, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot Amen. be Amen. Amen. Romans 8, 26, that the Spirit Himself maketh intercession for us, for we don't always even know what we ought to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit of God with us. So with the power of the Spirit of God, who is with us, and the promise of Christ, our advocate in heaven, when we go to prayer and seek the Heavenly Father, we're not alone in that prayer. Now, it's often been said, every prayer is going to be answered, right? Sometimes yes, Sometimes no, sometimes wait, okay? Uh, but God does answer prayer, and so uh, that would be the answer that I would give to that particular question. Lee? What's that? Okay, so changing the mind of God. Um, tell you what, let's go there for a minute. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 2. And I'll confess, even as we turn there, th there... There are mysteries involved in this, and so I'm about to introduce one of them. Um, Judges chapter 2, verse 18, and you'll read this in other passages in the Old Testament. This is just the one that comes to mind. And when the Lord raised up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. So the word repent, most of us are familiar with the idea of repentance being a change of mind. Now, this is an Old Testament word to repent, and there's still the illusion of that. So does God change his mind? Well, he didn't do what he had been doing or what it looked like he would do. And the answer to that was because of the judges who judged in Israel and he heard their groaning when they were oppressed. Those groanings would be prayers. And because of their prayers, God turned. God moved. Now, did God know he would turn? Yes. He's omniscient. Did God have to turn? No. He's sovereign. And yet he did turn. And what is the influencing element that causes him to turn? Prayer. Would he have turned without the prayers? That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying we're at least able to say we're cooperating with the will of God in that matter of prayer. And this is, of course, national prayer for the oppression of Israel and God turning. So, does prayer turn the mind of God? Yes. Can I explain that? No. Is that fair? <laughs> Steve, don't, no laugh back there on what I'm trying to be serious. <laughs> Make me really uh, phobic about this. Go ahead, Lee. Lee asks, is it a fair statement to say that God chooses to use the prayers of, his, of the saints to accomplish His will? Absolutely. Absolutely, because I think it enhances and enlarges His glory. 
as we become participatory in His purposes. We are here to glorify Him. That's right. Yes. Yeah. If a person has everything about prayer figured out, run. Because there are issues of faith that we have to say, I will never understand. That's troublesome for some people. A long time ago, I got a hold of John chapter 3, and it really helped me out. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, uh, the Spirit of God is like the wind. He says, the wind blows where it listeth, and you don't know where it came from, and you don't know where it's going. So it is with the new birth. Hmm. What's he saying there? You can't explain the wind. <laughs> the evening forecasters might think they can, but it doesn't always work out that way. He's simply saying there's some things that you don't know where it came from and where it's going. There's some mysteries to you that will always be mysteries to you. And that's okay. Because we're dealing with the mind of omniscience. And we are finite and he's infinite. And I have to confess when it comes to the topic of prayer, uh, the best posture of prayer is to assume our finiteness and his greatness and our dependence and plead with him as he wants us to so that his glory... In the end, I can't tell you how many times I've said this to, this to people with whom I've partnered in prayer. Remember as we do this, that you might be doing this and this and this and this. And the only way you can, you can really be safeguarded from being proud if it comes to be is if you've been totally dependent on the Lord in prayer the whole way so that in the end you can say God did it, not your efforts. Steve? So we have the confident assurance that Jesus is coming again. He said it. I will come again. And we have the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos praying, even so come Lord Jesus and come quickly Lord. So praying God, God knows the, t the day and the time, but cooperating with God in that plea is, brings glory to God and demonstrates the dependence of his people and we're commanded to pray. So how would we explain to a Christian friend why CCM isn't appropriate for worship or personal use? I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm not going to give you a real protracted answer on this this evening, but I'll give you a, at least an abbreviated answer because typically when that question is offered, you don't have a protracted amount of time to give an answer. So when somebody says, well, what about Christians listening to CCM? I always run immediately. CCM, contemporary Christian music. Yeah, contemporary Christian music, I'm sorry. So CCM would typically be contemporary Christian music. I go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. The 28th and 29th verses of Hebrews 12 are New Testament. Agreed? This is really important. Because here we find a New Testament principle on the topic of worship that has been scratched out, it seems, from many people's Bibles. And I think the carnage of it in our churches is uh, really remarkable. Verse 28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God. And up to that point, everybody's good. We've received this kingdom that cannot be removed. We have the eternal promises. 
We have grace. Everybody likes to talk about grace so that we may serve God. Now, the word serve in Hebrews 12 and verse 28 is the Greek word lutreo. So you can pencil in there if you haven't heard me say this before. That word is often translated, typically translated worship. So I'm going to read it that way. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may worship God. And how do we worship God? Acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. So when we worship God, how do we do it? First word, with reverence and godly fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For our God is a consuming fire. What do the angels sing in heaven as they worship before the throne? Holy, holy, holy. How do they demonstrate their reverence when they sing holy, holy, holy before God? They're covering their faces with two wings. They're covering their feet with two wings. With two wings they do fly as they sing holy, holy, holy. Would you say that sounds pretty reverent? I would too. Now, you can build all kinds of skyscraper definitions on the topic of reverence. But we live in a generation today where our God is imminent and transcendent. He's imminent. He's near at hand. He's transcendent. He's afar off. Jesus says, this is how you enter into prayer. Our Father, with, that's imminent. That's relational which art in heaven. That's transcendent. That's far above us. So in every prayer, there's the imminence of God and the transcendence of God. There's the nearness of God and the far-off otherness of God. Let me just say, in American Christian culture today, we're overwhelmed with God's imminence and we're ill-informed of God's transcendence. We're living in a culture today who's brought God down to our level and forgotten that God is on a whole nother level. And the ramifications of that are all around us, but they're especially made evident in times when we worship. When we worship, we're showing, it's in the Word, we're showing the value we place on God, His greatness. Worship fundamentally is seeing his transcendence, surely we're claiming his imminence as well. Where two or three are gathered, he's in our midst. But worship is understanding his greatness and, and acknowledging that in a corporate fashion. So I'm back on the, remember, I've got a limited time to answer this question. Uh, if I'm talking to a friend and they say, what about CCM? I'm going right to Hebrews chapter 12. We are those who worship the Lord with reverence. Now, let me just transfer the question. Do you think that the worship in that particular service, in a CCM service, a contemporary Christian music service, do you think it's reverent? Do you think it demonstrates godly fear? So now I'm going to ask a question. So how do I demonstrate to the God that I worship a spirit of reverence? And how can I demonstrate a godly fear? So you help me out. You, you be the pastoral staff for a moment here. How are we going to fashion this Sunday's worship service? Something that glorifies God, Shelley? 
make sure the focus is on God and not on those presenting the music. I appreciate that a great deal. So it's not about the performer or the performance. It's about the person of God that we're worshiping. It's been said this way, if you leave the building and say, and Shelly knows this, she's one of my favorite soloists. I've got a number of favorite soloists. But, and it's because when Shelly sings, she shares the message so well. It's such a blessing when that's the focus. And it's not about vocal tones, though that's very helpful, of course, but she's message-oriented, and I, I get that. So you don't leave the service saying, uh, boy, she's a good singer. You leave the service saying, boy, she serves a great God. Johnny? And that's one of the things I noticed here at Colonial is, um, you know, we have the specials and everything, and sometimes kids sing, and there's never any class. People listen to the message, and when the song's over, everyone says amen. And that's, uh, uh, I, I don't even see that like at this church, that's that. People like to clap, and, and that really, really struck me when I, uh, when I first came here, I was like, this is excellent. Like, this is, they're, they're not pointing us these people on the stage. They're pointing everybody to... So Johnny's sharing that when he came here, one of the differences he found at Colonial, as opposed to other ministries that he's been part of, is people aren't clapping when someone sings. Instead, they're allowing what they've heard, and maybe an amen or even a hearty amen, or even a, a pastor's brain going into a fog at the end of it, like it did this past Sunday. But whatever it is, it's not focused on the person. All right, let's continue with this topic of how do we fashion then a worthy worship service? Yes, Michael? Based in Scripture. At the center of real worship, there are words. We think in words. Now, music stirs our emotions. Music is a language of emotions. Um, music can change the emotional temperature of the room immediately. But the words ought to be for those who are seeking a reverence toward God. The words ought to reflect the accuracy of the theology of God's Word and reflect that accurately, of course. So yes, word-centered. Lee, and I'll come to you. Okay, go ahead. Say, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy and acceptable. Amen. Yeah, that's good. So, uh, setting the congregation in mind, Lee said the pastor where he once attended would begin always a message with Psalm 19:14. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our minds, so that there is an acknowledgement. Now, let me confess, okay? Again, I, I'm pretty confessional when it comes to this. Just because I'm a Baptist doesn't mean the Baptist churches, independent Baptist churches. Just because I'm a fundamentalist doesn't mean that the fundamentalist, the fundamental churches have always done this right. I had a conversation with a man that really impacted my life a number of years ago. He was a United States Senator by the name of Gordon Humphrey. He'd retired from being an airline pilot. He ran to be a United States Senator in New Hampshire and he promised, I will only serve two terms. He's self-limited. And he did. So he came back from his two terms in D.C. He bought the local radio station and became my friend. He reached out to me. He'd visited our services, and he liked what he heard. And he took me out to 
breakfast or lunch or something, and he said, Pastor Phelps, I want to make you the evangelical voice of the capital region. I want to put you on a radio station. Of course, my mind's thinking, how much? So, so I said, well, Senator Humphrey, how much are we talking here? He said, no charge. He said, I want to put your services on live every Sunday morning. We'll send somebody over remotely uh, to be part of your service. And he said, I know we'll get agitation, so I've already talked to the Jewish people. They're going to be on on Saturday. I got the Catholics coming on early in the morning when nobody listens to it anyway. This is what he said. And he said, but you're going to be on uh, prime time. Your service starts at 1045, and it, it doesn't matter when you conclude. We'll just broadcast you live, and it won't cost you a penny. Well, that's hard to turn down. So I said, well, thank you, Senator Humphrey. And as we got to talking, I said, so you've visited our church, but you haven't really landed. So what's the deal? And this is what he said. He said, you know, I came to Christ as my Savior as a young man under the ministry of Don Wurtzen, who started, or Jack Wurtzen, rather, who started the Word of Life Ministries. And he said, I genuinely was born again. It changed everything in my life. And he said, as a young man, a young married man, um, we went to a Baptist church in the community, and it was kind of a party every Sunday, you know what I mean? It was just a little flippant, lighthearted, everything's, everybody's yakking it up and a little goofy. And he said, then as we got to middle age, my wife and I had the privilege of adopting two boys. And he said, we went to the Episcopal church. What? But he said, because I thought, you know, I want my boys at least growing up having a reverence when they go into the house of the Lord. That man's a brilliant man. But what he said really resonated in my heart. It made me think. Now, does that mean I, I, I have no humor on a Sunday? No, that's not true. Uh, God has given us personality. But it may mean for me that I reduce some of it. Because I don't think that, even as we've already said, that a worship service ought to be man-centered. I think when we come into the house of the Lord, it ought to have a God focus. And I can get easily convicted about this, but it's something that from this text, so we've gone a long way on the topic of CCM. So the other part of this question is, so what about personal use? Now there's a case that can be made, and the missionaries of old have always made it, that we're all in full-time service, but some are privileged to be vocational servants. And a case that could be made that for the believer, everywhere we go since the Spirit of God is with us, there ought to always be that ongoing worship of God. We are those, after all, who worship the Lord in spirit and truth. But I do recognize there's a difference between when the the church comes together collectively, and the Bible recognizes this in 1 Corinthians 14, putting a priority in 1 Corinthians 14 on the ministry of the Word, saying, when you come together collectively and you put a priority on God's Word, instead of tongues in the, in the text, he said, if, if, you, if, if you're putting a priority on tongues, 1 Corinthians 14 says, people are going to come in from the lost world, and they're going to think you're nuts. That's my paraphrase. But if they come in and they, everybody has a word from God's Word, the people from the community are going to fall down on their faces and say, surely God is with you. The most striking thing to the lost person when they come into a worship service is the difference of that service between what they're experiencing and what the world has to offer. And the more the church tries to pattern itself after the world, the less the world 
will want to be there. I think there's a correlation between the abdication of church attendance in America today and the abuse of what worship ought to be in the churches of America today. We have megachurch phenomena and we have burned out believers and communities. And if you look at the graph, you'll see the modernization of contemporary services and you'll see the diminishment of the people in the population going to church and becoming church members. And it's just a, it's just a big Y, if you will, or a V at the end of the graph. You can get saved in a contemporary service. The gospel can be given. But if we're not focused on God in the service, so now back to, well, what about in my own personal use? I'd be careful there because we're always servants of God. Two, be careful with whom you identify. Even if you're putting it in on earphones on your walk, you're in fellowship with whatever that's giving you. You're hearing the message of whatever that's giving you, and that message will change you. And further, you'll become desensitized, and we want to be careful with this. So, as you know, we have a fourth grader at home, a little bit addicted to sports, okay, if you've ever talked to him. And so, right now, the Celtics are in the playoffs, and so when he has the privilege of last night, he got to stay up a little after nine. That's a little late for him, but, you know, first game against the Heat. But he's got a remote in one hand when that game is on. Anytime it's a commercial, it's click. It goes into mute. Why? Are we, are we legalistic? No, we're trying to keep him sensitive to what's good and what's evil. And I think there's wisdom in that. So again, back to CCM, I, I think you will find yourself desensitized. The buffer music between the good preachers you hear on radio stations here in town, be careful with it. Uh, that buffer music can, can buffet you. And, um, and the other thing that, I, I am going longer on this than I thought, but these are personal thoughts that I've had often. I was talking to a fellow, Dave, Dr. David Ledgerwood, who's the head of the music department at Maranatha Baptist Bible College years ago, another formative conversation. And I said, hey, Dr. Ledgerwood, what do you listen to when you're at home? And, and this is a gifted musician, unbelievable. He was in the uh, United States Army Band. That's where he got his start. He can, uh, Dr. Suter can verify this. The man on the keyboard is just, he's, he's amazing and he could do it all by ear. So what do you listen to, Dr. Ledgerwood, when you're at home? And he said this to me. He said, oh, when I go home, I don't listen to anything. I said, really? He said, no, that's what I do all day when I'm with the students. And he said, I, I kind of have to cleanse my palate and start afresh every day. And he said, and I found in my life, because I love music so well, I can become very easily addicted to it. And then he said, all of the arts are addictive That was good. Silence can be a good thing. It can help you on Sunday to say, that choir number was awesome. And it was. But you know, our choir is never going to be able to compare to a choir that went into a studio, was carefully dubbed and woven together through however many iterations. And we have come to a time in our Christian walk in America where music is so digitized and so available that so many people don't have the privilege of what we have at Colonial and they go into church and they're not satisfied. And one of the best ways to satisfy is to cleanse your palate, give yourself some silent time, uh, listen to a sermon, listen to the Bible when it's being read, but uh, be careful. Questions? Tony.
I'm mindful of 1 Corinthians 14. I thought you were going to say something about what I was thinking about. And it was about Paul when he said, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And that he had seen some things that were unlawful to look at and yes. talk about. And so when Paul had gone to heaven, if I understand scripture right, he got a view of heaven and he couldn't say anything about it. Yeah, that's right. That's in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talking about, yes, sir. But that's exactly right. There are things in heaven that the worship of heaven will be beyond and are beyond our descriptions at this point. Yes, Vicki? I always told us, when we had young children and stuff, I remember saying that whatever we as parents do in moderation, our children will do in excess. Yeah. That's a good, good adage. What we do in moderation, our children will tend to take in excess. That's often, always, often said also, the, the teacher's doubt will become the student's dogma. And where there are vulnerabilities, they will be passed on. Annie? Annie's saying she, she tends to notice that with CCM, a lot of focus is on what God does rather than who God is. And there's a tension point there. Dr. Kevin's far more versed on this than I am. But there were tension points even of having testimonial hymns, uh, especially in the, the revival periods of the 1800s and the early 1900s in the Moody campaign with Sankey and then on into uh, the time that we're in. There were those at that time who wrestled with, shall we have these gospel choruses that are testimonies. Um, and that wrestling match will, will continue. It's, it's again, it's one of those puzzles that I don't think I have the capacity to solve, but I do want to have the capacity to say whether it be a testimonial song or a song that's very doxological or focused on God, there ought to always be a reverence when we're gathered together in, with the Lord's people. Well, I better go on here. Is there a chance that the world's is millions of years old. Well, are you asking that of me because you assume that I've been there for all that? I don't know. <laughs> and my answer to that simply is no. No, there's not a chance. And, and you say, well, why? And one of the simplest answers that has affected my knowledge of this is uh, in Genesis 2 and verse 17, uh, God says there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and warns. But on the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Dying thou shalt die, is how it reads. And that's exactly what happened. And so Romans chapter 5 says, Wherefore is by one man, verse 12, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So to have a world that's millions of years old, the only reason someone comes to that thought is to provide a window for evolution to crawl in, okay? And we hear so much 
from the uniformitarians, the evolutionist of the age of the earth seems to be, you know, every, my eyes have a tendency to roll back into their sockets every time I go to a national park and someone says, you know, this formation has been here for four million years and you're like, okay, right. Like you were there to date that. And, and I know, okay, carbon dating and everything, no precise science to any of it, of course, but theologically we start here. There was no death. There was no death before sin came. So with sin came death. So that's not just our death. Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. What kind of death was he talking about? In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, in Romans chapter 1, the whole creation is included in that awful death sentence. Romans chapter 1 in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." This can actually be said this way, the end of verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things uh, that are made, or, or literally, ever since they were made. The invisible things ever since they were made give a revelation of God, even his eternal power. And the whole creation, we're going to read in Romans 8, is groaning together together. Uh, because they, when they knew not God, they glorified Him not as God, were thankful. God interweaves this topic of the creation and the effect of man's sin on creation. Jesus does this. Come back with me to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 and verse 19. For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation, Okay, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. He's talking about the beginning of the creation. Based on our knowledge of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, what do you think he's talking about? The beginning of creation being millions and millions of years ago? No. He's talking about the beginning of creation. He's affirming, uh, if you don't mind, he's affirming uh, the Mosaic um, revelation of the first chapters of Revelation, or, or Genesis rather. For in those days shall, the, shall be great affliction, such as not from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be, except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he hath chosen. He's tying together an affirmation of the creation. Well, on the sixth day, God created man, but the creation is seven days. And Jesus is just affirming what Moses has recorded for us in the first chapters of Genesis. So again, back to the simple answer. No, I don't think the world is millions of years old. Why? Because the creation was affected by man's sin and it groans together. Two, because Jesus affirms the creation as one unit. That unit begins with God separating the waters from the land, putting the sun in the sky and you know the, the Genesis record. And without sin, there's no death. So when people are trying to figure out 
why all the fossils and why all the dinosaurs and all these things that supposedly came millions of years ago, they didn't because those are all records of death and death didn't come until man sinned. So that would be a position that we would take or I would take believing in early earth, not an aged earth. Questions? Thoughts on that? Yes, Avery. Yeah, right. Yeah, the genealogies trace right back, both Old, Old Testament and New Testament. Christ's genealogy traces back. Dr. Whitcomb, in his writings, talks about the doctrine of apparent age. And that's good. Uh, that, believing that the world was, was created with an apparent age. And the illustration of that would be, for instance, when Jesus turned the water into wine, that turning of the water into wine, he turned it into something that had an appearance of age, but had been immediately, miraculously made. What do you mean appearance of age? Well, to make wine, you have to have a grapevine, grapes, harvest, squeeze, bottle, yada, yada. There's appearance of age. When Jesus fed the 5,000, with the loaves, the loaves looked like they'd been baked in an oven, that the wheat had been ground, the, 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 the dough had been kneaded, the ovens had been fired, the, the food had come out. It had an appearance of age. Adam was created with an appearance of age. There are people who write books on whether or not Adam had a navel, okay? That, did he come with that kind of appearance of age? I'll leave that up to you to figure that one out. But... Adam was clearly uh, created with a vocabulary, communication, ability to name everything uh, and speak to God in a language that God gave to him. So it, it shouldn't overwhelm us to think that while we have the Genesis account, that God could create the world with an appearance of age. He's done that regularly through miracles throughout the scriptures. So when we get to heaven, and I'll end with this, and the role is called Will we be called by our birth name or by our new name? So let's go to Revelation 3 and verse 5. Revelation 3 and verse 5. So he says in verse 5, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I love this verse. Because it shows the grace of God. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess him. So there is a book of life. It's the registry of heaven. And if your name is in the book of life, Jesus says the disciples were rejoicing because they had power over the spirits. And Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, don't rejoice over that. Rejoice in this, that your name is in heaven. We sing the song, it's wrong, but we sing it anyway. There's a new name written down in glory. Eh, not, there is and there isn't. Okay, well, I'll show, you where, I'll show you where there is. So you can't poetically make it sing, my name's not blotted out. You know, that's not nearly as picturesque. But this is the beauty of God's grace. Every name inscribed in the book of life until the time that the person finally rejects the offer of eternal life through Christ by faith blotted out. That's a picture of God's grace. It's not written in. It's those who have rejected or blotted out. Why? Because God will not have any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. It's his desire that that book be filled with names. And it is. 
If you know how people wrote before erasers, they would just take a big ink stripe and put it over so you couldn't read it any longer. That's blotting out. So the book of life, the names are blotted out, not written in. The damned are blotted out. And those who by faith have received salvation are kept in. But, for those of you who are really troubled because I just corrupted a song they really love, come back to Revelation chapter 2. And I think we can get a new name here. All right? Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, will give to him a white stone. The white stone in the courts of the Romans stood for acquittal. When a white stone was cast by a jury, they were acquitting. When a black stone was cast, they were convicting. He will give to these that overcome a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving the one who receives it. So much like Abraham became, or Abram became Abraham, and Cephas became Peter, names were given for character. Jacob, supplanter, became Israel prince. So names were transferred to reflect the character. Friend, you have a new name coming. On the acquittal stone of heaven, there'll be a name given to you that nobody knows except you, reflecting your character in the eyes of God in heaven. So back to the question specifically, when we all get to heaven and the role is called, we'll be called by our birth name or our new name. I think we'll be called by our birth name because the book of life contains our birth names unless they've been blotted out. But there is a new name written down in glory, okay? And there's the new name. In fact, if you go over to the third chapter and the first verse, you'll see the same in verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. Whoop, that's not the verse I wanted. I should have stopped when I was ahead. Where's the verse on new name there? Yeah, that one. Uh, nope. There it is, verse 5. No, that's not it either. I'm looking for the last new name passage. There are two in, in the book of Genesis. Somebody want to? 12, thank you. Okay, yeah, here it is. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of God, and he shall go no more out. I will write upon him the name of my God, now, I'm looking specifically for the one that's, oh yeah, there it is. It is that one. And the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Now, somebody could say that's the new name of God, uh, but Revelation 2 seems to indicate you personally are going to have a new name. Uh, Daniel didn't like Belteshazzar, but had he been Belteshazzar, he would have liked to have Daniel, my God is judge. So that's... God's revelation on the newness of the name. I think the roll call will be from our old names, but there is a new name written down in glory. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.